Thinner Logs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hi everybody, my name is Eric Garneau, and this is the best of 2014 episode of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories. It's become an annual tradition of ours to compile some of our favorite stories from the previous 12 months uh, into a massive celebratory episode at the end of the year, and that is what you are listening to right now. To put this episode together, we asked frequent Your Stories speakers and guests, as well as Nerdalogs members, to nominate some of the pieces that stuck with them the most in this past year of episodes. Uh, I looked at what stories people nominated, and especially what reasons they had for nominating them, and this is what resulted. Uh, In addition to representing a handful of just incredible tales from the past year, we've got new introductions recorded by some of the people who nominated those stories, uh, explaining why they love them so much. As usual, there's also music from myself, Dwight Hassler, and Claire Friedman. Uh, So with all that out of the way, let's open up, as we always do, with a couple of songs. This first one comes to us from last year's annual episode. It seems to be something of a mini-tradition to kick off these end-of-year things with a song that was popular in the calendar year before. So, hot from 2013. Sounds a lot like a Casey Kasem intro. And I'm sorry I can't do his impression. But hot from 2013, here is our take on Lord's Royals. seen a diamond in the flesh. I cut my teeth on wedding rings in the movie, and I'm not proud of my dress. In a torn up town, no postcode envy, but every song's like gold teeth, gray goose dripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball gowns, trash in the hotel room, we don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams, but everybody's like crystal, Maybach, diamonds on your timepiece, jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash, we don't care. We are caught up in your love affair, and we'll never be royal. In our rods and our blind, that kind of luck's just ain't fine. We crave a different kind of buzz, let me be your Different kind of vibes. Let me be your ruler. 
fantasy.
I'm here with Kevin Reeder. Uh, Kevin is one of the progenitors of the Nerdalogs, uh, one of the producers. He does a lot of the booking that you hear on the show. So if you like the guests, that's on Kevin. If you don't like him, well, you like all the guests, of course. Uh, so Kevin nominated Case Blackwell's Manstra story, as did a lot of you. Uh, and Kevin was the guy who brought Case to your story. So I thought I'd like to hear from him as to why the story resonated with him. So, Kevin, what do you have to say about that? Hey, thanks, Eric. Uh, yeah, well, I'm a creative director over at the Public House Theater, and uh, Case was putting up a show called My Chicago Valentine, and he was just talking uh, – in their show, they also shared true stories from their lives, and Case <laughs> – uh, the core of Case's story was just so powerful and evocative and provocative and, and just brutally aware and honest and raw and, uh, you know, you, the story you're about to hear, <laughs> I'm having a hard time describing what, what you're in store for. You don't want to give it away. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to give anything away, but, uh, he just, he, he's not afraid to share something. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people have dark corners of their lives that they don't necessarily want to let out into the light. And Case has no problem doing that. <laughs> so there you go. Hey guys. Um, so when I was 22, I became a manstress. Um, in case that's <laughs> not self-explanatory, that's when a usually younger guy dates a married, usually older woman. Um, <laughs> now, I wish I had a better reason for participating in adultery, but I really don't. I was just very lonely at the time. I was living with uh, in Virginia with my parents, which was something I was endlessly self-conscious about, and I rarely went out, and when I did, I certainly did not have the best luck with girls my own age or girls in general. Uh, but that year, at a Halloween party, I met a Beautiful 33-year-old woman dressed as Morticia Adams. Uh-huh. And when I told her both my age and living situation, her eyes lit up. <laughs> and I don't think it was so much a uh, cougar thing as it was, this guy doesn't have a lot going on in his life. He would be perfect for my many, many adultery fantasies. <laughs> and that's what our relationship was really all about. Uh, I remember about a week after we had started seeing each other, she asked me if I would be cool with uh, going to a restaurant where she and her husband would be eating dinner. She wanted me to sit at a table within view of them, but never acknowledge their presence. Um, she said for some reason the idea of me being in the same room as her husband without him knowing it was super exciting and sexy. I, not, that I'm, not that I want to give myself any credit, but I refuse to do that. Uh, but, but I should have ended the entire relationship because that is super creepy. Um, but I didn't. Again, she was very pretty. I was very lonely. I did do certain things she was looking for. Um, she was super into poetry, so we would read each other self-authored erotic poetry before sex. And that is... It's as gross as it sounds. Um, we would break into empty buildings late at night and have sex in dark, derelict rooms. Um... This isn't maybe as creepy, but we, we took a one-day, one-night vacation to Washington, D.C., where all we did was go to the spy museum and then stay in a boutique hotel with red everything and paintings of vaginas everywhere. Uh, but eventually, she had gotten about as many fantasies out of me as she was looking for or I was willing to give. Either way, we steadily talked uh, less and less. Um, and when neither of us had really reached, reached out to each other in about three weeks, I assumed it was over. But then, uh, 
Right about that three-week mark, she sent three-week mark. She sent me the following email: "Case, I know that we haven't talked in a while, but please respond to this as soon as possible. My husband has had some weird fatigue symptoms, and I think a cold or virus that he hasn't been able to shake. Maybe I'm just panicking, but I've been reading about the early symptoms of HIV, which include fatigue. Could you have given me something I passed on to my husband? Please let me know if I should be worried. Dot dot dot. Maybe over drinks." I I promise I don't have HIV or AIDS uh, and that's that's recent I know I know recently I knew back then too after the test um but yeah, it really took her asking me out for drinks and uh, asking if I had transitively given her husband HIV in the same paragraph uh, for it to really sink in just how wrong the relationship was. We never got those drinks, and I never saw her again. Hey guys, so I am here with Claire Friedman of the Nerdalogs of Cover Stories. You hear her every episode sometimes multiple times oftentimes multiple times uh so claire nominated uh patrick klepik's evil bong story which was super popular a lot of people really love this one but i really wanted to ask claire why she liked it because she's had some very complimentary things to say about patrick uh in the past so claire why what spoke to you about this story i just loved um the enthusiasm and delight and i feel like with so many stories like that you know, it's kind of like, oh, and then this happened and maybe, you know, something small happened and we never heard about it again. But this just kept ramping up and things just kept going right in the dumbest way. Um, that's like my favorite thing about any story and the way that Patrick told it. Um, it was so well written and, and so enthusiastic. I, I love listening to it. Uh, but when I thought about fingers crossed, uh, like that sort of implies to me maybe maybe a little bit of luck. Uh, and then throughout life, you can maybe think about ways you can subvert uh, that luck. And uh, a couple of years ago, I had a conversation uh, with my now wife, who I'll be married to uh, for two years in a couple of weeks. Um, I, th- I thought in my head about that line and knew everyone would clap. I just really wanted to make sure I got it in there. Um, and, and we had a conversation a couple of years ago where she goes, hey – you know, we've been dating for like five years or, or so now. It's like, <laughs> look, like neither of us are religious, not in a rush to get married, but I'm going to be 30 pretty soon. We need to be married by the time I'm 30. It's going to get embarrassing. So I said, okay. So like that gate, like, you know, you have that conversation. That would most freak most people out. It's like, all right, cool. I know we're getting married. I don't have to worry about like the whole saying yes part, but now I can figure out like, what am I going to do? I can't just, like, surprise her at a restaurant. Like, that's no, like she's already told me, you have a deadline, so figure out something cool in the, in the time in between. So I started thinking about that, and it's kind of like when you get near Christmas time and you're not sure what to buy someone, and you just kind of, like, scroll through Amazon. Like, you just figure something's going to happen. I wasn't going to overthink it. And, but, like, that got me, like, increasingly nervous that I had to come up with something pretty cool. And when we first started dating... 
uh, we got really into watching uh, horror films, and specifically uh, Charles Band created horror films. He's responsible for Puppet Master. He was produced around Ghoulies, like a lot of stuff in the '80s. Uh, he was uh, behind, and he's still around making movies today. Although these days he's responsible for things like Evil Bong. Like they're not as culturally relevant or interesting. Uh, and I don't mean to shock you, but uh, the result of this story is that I now have an IMDb credit for Evil Bong 3, The Wrath of Bong. Um, I, should be, I should be clear. It's, it's, I didn't write the screenplay. It's a story by, but I did, my text is really big in the movie. Um, and on their website, because uh, I just I kept up with what he was doing, even though what he makes today is complete garbage, um, it was, hey, we're doing Evil Bong 3. We would like the fans to come up with the subtitle. So I said, okay, I, I can do this. Like, I can go get drunk, and I can come up with a name for Evil Bong 3. So I went out with a friend, and we came up with Evil Bong 3, Wrath of Bong. And the idea was, like, playing on Star Trek, and the idea was a, an asteroid came in from outer space, and, like, there was kind of, like, green moss on it, but then, like, some stoners find it, and, like, they start smoking it, and it turns it into zombies. And I wrote this 150-word treatment, not realizing that you only had to come up with a subtitle. Like, I was really committed to this idea. And so uh, I go online, submit submit it, like, two days after the deadline, and, like, wrote, like, a very apologetic email. They're like, you know, I just I really worked on this, and, like, I, you know, I'm sorry it took two days, but I'd like it to still be considered for the contest. Skip a couple of weeks. Uh, then they, on their website, they put up a bunch of titles. They're like, 15 of these titles and mine's in there and you know in some small way that to be considered for a Charles Band production is is kind of cool but uh, instead of just choosing one they were going to put uh, it up to a vote so you know of course like I get on Twitter and Facebook and I'm like hey everyone you gotta you gotta vote for Evil Long 3 Wrath of Bong like I, let's get this movie made <laughs> and uh <laughs> And so I, at the time, I'm working for this uh, the now defunct G4 television station. They're now es- Esquire Network or, or something like that. Uh, I was at the end of my time there. I wasn't having as, uh, as much fun there anymore, and I was looking towards uh, the future. So towards the end of the day, I was kind of checking out. And towards the end of the day, it was also when I was thinking, well, maybe I should try and find people to vote for this movie that we're hoping to get made. And so here's what I realized. So Charles Band... Not making good movies. Also not a fan of good poll technology on the internet. So what I mean by that is that I came to realize uh, that if you voted for it, and he was using PollMonkey, I'm not sure if they're still around. They shouldn't be around if they are. Bad poll technology. Don't use them. Uh, it didn't uh, record that you were, like, the specific computer you were voting from. So if you just reloaded the page, you could just vote again. And I was working at a job that I didn't really like. I wanted this movie to get made. I just started voting for my movie hundreds of times. <laughs> and as it turns out, no one else had figured that out, or like reasonable people were not voting for which subtitle of Evil Bong 3 that they wanted to get made. But I was like, very particular about it. I was not like voting thousands of times. I didn't want them to realize that they were using shoddy poll technology. So instead, I'm just voting like 10 or 12 times and like slowly seeing like. Wrath of Bong just like really just escape in front of like all the other ones. And, and this was a moment where, uh, you know, I crossed my fingers that I could somehow be associated with this really terrible, uh, Full Moon, uh, productions movie and then realized like, well no, actually instead it doesn't have to be fingers crossed, I can just cheat and make sure that it gets to be my film. 
And at the end of it, uh, they, they put up this YouTube video and Charles Band is up there on YouTube. He's like, hey, we're, you know, we're announcing the results. And like, I knew the results, but I was still nervous because I figured at some point they'd have like someone look at this and be like, 99% of the votes are from this one computer in Los Angeles. We should probably discount those. Uh, they didn't do that. And instead, you know, Charles Band gets on this YouTube video and he just goes, well, uh, Right the bong, really. A lot of people want this movie to get made, so we're, we're making this movie. They got thousands of votes. And not only that, but he goes, and this guy, Patrick Klepek, um, he wrote a plot summary, and it's pretty good, so we're just going to write a screenplay a screen, a screen based on that. So, uh, like, not many more details I don't need for the story, but, like, so I end up getting the screenplay, and, like, I, girlfriend's out of town, and, like, I get the screenplay for Wrath of Bong. I draw a bath. And, like, I, like, I got my iPad, and I'm sitting here ready to read this. And, like, getting, like, more and more horrified as I read it, because it's really bad. It's, I don't want to be associated with this anymore. But, uh, at this point, it was too late, um, because they had gotten in, t- in touch with me and said, hey, uh, in case you want to come out to the premiere, like, you know, you'd kind of have to travel for it. Uh, but if you want to come out to it, you could. Uh, they're obviously not going to pay for it. Uh, but they said, it's going to be in Chicago. And just completely coincidental, it was just sort of a horror festival happening out here. And I realized at that moment, that's it. I'm going to propose to my future wife on stage at the premiere of Evil Bong 3, Wrath of Bong, in Chicago. <laughs> Because we had met out there, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And thankfully, uh, when we did get out to Chicago, we had uh, all, all of our family there, uh, all of our friends there. The movie was terrible. Everyone left within a couple of minutes um, to go out into the lobby where you could uh, buy alcohol, which is a highly recommended. Um, and it was the one thing where I got to go up on stage uh, and ask her to marry me, and I didn't actually have to my fingers crossed because I knew she'd say yes. So thank you. <laughs> Hey, I'm here with Mike Chuck Bretzliff. Mike Chuck is cool. You've heard him a lot. He's with Chicago Loot Drop, and he's told a bunch of stories, and we like him a lot. You're going to hear more from him next year. Uh, so Mike Chuck nominated an Andrew Bentley story about the RNC, which was a favorite. Uh, Andrew, as you probably know, is a Nerdalogs Emeritus member, one of the best writers I've ever gotten to work with, and a super funny dude. But I'd like to hear why Mike Chuck liked Andrew's story so much. Um, I really like this story. Like any good story, the like the time limit. If you haven't been to Nerdalogs, your stories, which you should go because it's amazing. Um, the time limit, I think Eric says, is always like try to keep it under five minutes. This one is like eleven minutes, I believe. And um, don't groan because you're about to listen to it, and it's going to be great because you're not going to realize that it's eleven minutes. Because the sign of a great story is that it goes by too quickly and it's over too fast. Um, cause, uh, Andrew's a great storyteller, um, and really kind of brings you in. He has, uh, a deep, rich voice, um, and perfect delivery that's just like, I'm just gonna throw it out. I'm gonna throw, I'm gonna throw it out. It's very Orson Welles-ish. If that's, I can throw that out as an ish, I guess. Um, so in general, just, you know, they've got all the separate podcasts, you, all the clips. You can listen to every story separately on the website. I would just go back and listen to Andrew's stories. He's always great. But this one in particular, because um, there's multiple ones to pick of his from 2014, 
this one in particular is uh, especially great. Um, he tells it with, uh, you know, some great cutting quips at the end of his sentences that are just masterful, which I, I desperately want to quote here, but I will screw it up kind of like anytime you try to quote something. But it's coming up next, so, you know, just wait and you'll get to hear it in its proper form. Um, they're hilarious, but also um, there's two things that are really um, wonderful about this story. Um, one is he goes, so he goes to RNC meeting in Chicago with his aunt and the meeting and the people there is just full of, um, in, in my mind, at least anyway, um, total craziness and talking points, like crazy talking points, uh, just swallowing the Republican party of this current era, um, Kool-Aid and repeating it as just solemn truth it's um so his story is very funny and it's therapeutic in the way that like the daily show is or colbert report is except that kind of like where colbert is a character who gets the joke none of these people the things these people are saying they don't get the joke they're saying the same craziness things it's crazy things that colbert would say but they don't realize how ridiculous they sound. And so there's some great little things that uh, uh, Andrew witnesses and uh, shares with us through this story. But the other thing, kind of one of my favorite things, is honestly, is his aunt, um, which is a wonderful, uh, kind of weird to say it's a wonderful character. She's a real person. I haven't met her, but I experienced her through this story. She's a wonderful character who got into the Republican Party um, during the Reagan administration, as, as crazy as it sounds, as a pro-life Republican, and that's kind of her platform of choice. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended there. Uh, excuse me, I said, did I say pro-life? I understand. Pro-choice, excuse me, pro-choice uh, Republican uh, in the during the Reagan administration. She got, got brought up all in that, I'm going to say hype, <laughs> if I want to be a backseat historian. And, um, but, you know, given the perspective of 30 years, she's not necessarily, obviously, it's not a, a viewpoint that's welcome and has ever really been welcome in the Republican Party, but she still holds on to that identity. And it's really cool to see um, the bits he shares about her trying to um, fit in despite how things have changed around her, um, uh, I would say, especially in the light of the last 10 or so years within that party. And then Andrew ends it. Um, he just gives he gives her you know a a, short, a a telling of the weekend as it goes, and then the ending is phenomenal with a chance encounter and a ballsy move that is just as funny and hilarious as it already is. Just is, just I'm clapping. I'm clapping. Even just thinking of it, I'm clapping. It was a masterful maneuver, and I think you're really gonna enjoy this story probably more than me talking about it. So I'm gonna shut up so you can hear it. In a Venn diagram wherein one side is labeled hate-fucking and the other side star-fucking, my trip to the summer meeting of the RNC in Chicago this year was right in the fucking middle. In the grand political tradition, I was only able to attend through nepotism, uh, as my great-aunt has been a member of the committee since the halcyon days of Reagan's Morning in America. Well, America is much darker now, which is, of course, why we need voter ID laws. Oh, 
delay on that one. <laughs> American skies are darker now. Uh, but my aunt still serves as the chairwoman of Republicans for Choice, with all the doomed nobility of a helmsman on the Titanic, pulling at a smashed rudder, politely confirming the captain's course as icy water floods the lower decks and drowns all the Irish. <laughs> The invitation uh, is given in a spirit of well-meaning but misguided evangelism, and I'm only too eager to attend. For a few days, at least, it seems, I'll get to be Matthew Tybee or Hunter S. Thompson, the, the spitting cobras of political journalism, soaking in the calliope music of the most demented circus this side of a Rob Zombie video. <laughs> I announce my plans with glee on Facebook, unperturbed uh, that no one seems to particularly care outside of one old friend who tells me to ask RNC Chair Reince Priebus what his name is an anagram for. <laughs> the night before, my eye is already twitching in anticipatory rage at the Caligulan pageantry that will no doubt be forthcoming. I forsake my regular coffee as I set out that morning, fueled only by the promise of schadenfreude and apoplexy as I step into the Western Hotel lobby and make my way up to the second floor. The friendly young women at the conference room door check my pass, and in I go, feeling very much like Lee Marvin in the Dirty Dozen. I find my aunt's table and join her there, tucked away at the back of the room, presumably to give security time to intercept her in the event she rushes the stage and attempts to abort one of the speakers. <laughs> Ironically, the speaker has already aborted of their own accord. Uh, Dick Cheney's plane has been delayed and he will not be arriving in time for these opening ceremonies. But as there must always be a Stark in Winterfell, we are assured first that Lynn Cheney will be speaking in his place, then, correction, Liz Cheney. A lineup change which is met with much the same re reaction as if they'd announced that at tonight's show, Pantera would be replaced by Oingo Boingo. <laughs> As the announcement is made, a, a wave of eye-rolling washes through the crowd of such severity that I grip the tablecloth, terrified that the entire hotel might lurch suddenly to the side. <laughs> I'm somewhat mystified at the reaction, and for the first time, I really look at my fellow attendees. It's hard to say exactly what I'm expecting, short of a detail from Hieronymus Bosch. Some of it is accurate, no prolapsing bird kings or ass-trumpeting demons, but there are the pallid old men and Botoxed old women, the, the Weasley-looking young Republicans and their homogenous appendage of pretty blonde wife. But in equal proportion are friendly nebbishes and kindly wheelchair-bound grandmothers, uh, young black women in smart pantsuits and a pair of gentlemen in pinstriped seersucker and straw butter hats who I immediately assume, and correctly, I will learn, are the representatives from Georgia. <laughs> At my very table sit two tanned and healthy-looking visitors from South Dakota, commiserating with genuine rue that chickens were all raised in a box these days and that liberals won't let you smoke in bars anymore. By the time failed senatorial carpetbagger Liz Cheney has taken the stage, I am already glumly consigned to the reality that I will be forced to judge my fellow conference-goers as individual human beings rather than as a single monstrous organ. Still, here is such a human being for me to judge. Her speech is a litany of all the most contemptible sound bites I have forecast, dismissing the very idea of a war on women, exhortations that we must continue to block Obama's policy and that that is patriotism, not obstructionism, indignant moaning over the great lies of Benghazi, and then down the rabbit hole, 
Our freedom is under assault from Washington in a way unknown in my lifetime. Follows fast on her heels of a tone-deaf anecdote about her daughter who couldn't have a horse as a child. The moral of this parable is unclear, but now, she assures us, she has two horses. <laughs> instinctively, instinctively, I touched the cut on my cheek where I shaved that morning with a dull razor because I couldn't afford new ones yet. But then we're on to foreign policy, and foreign it is, to all reason and moderation. We, we've never tortured anybody, she claims, explaining how our own operatives are required to undergo waterboarding before they inflict it on anyone else, and somehow invoking 9-11 all in the same breath. She describes Obama's anti-terrorism efforts, including trials and Miranda rights, and it takes me a good minute to realize I'm supposed to see these as negatives. <laughs> we must reverse Obama's devastating defense cuts. John Kerry meeting with the Turks is an insult to Israel. Under Obama, she pleads, we don't even have interrogations anymore. When she leaves the stage, she's trailed by modest applause and the lingering stench of the abattoir. And for a moment, I return to my initial expectations of horrific extremism. But this has just been a freak storm. The rest of the day passes in relative monotony. There are presentations, of course, plenty of statistics on outreach and fundraising, and as a political junkie, I'm interested, but I know it's nothing to stir the blood. Many of the RNC members seem to agree. As I sit in the back of a third conference hall during a presentation on their efforts to duplicate the Obama fundraising machine, idly gnawing on a complimentary pretzel stick, I glance forward <laughs> to see a representative from Maryland playing Ebony on his computer. I feel a brief moment of envy and consider why I'm spending a beautiful Saturday inside like this. Because I care. I tell myself, because this is important. At a panel for up-and-coming Republican stars, a black man, an Asian-American, and a woman, <laughs> uh, questions include, what does EPA overreach mean for the war on coal? And where has the Obama foreign policy gone wrong? If they were begging the question any harder, Rudy Giuliani would have them deported to Jersey. But all I can muster is a wry chuckle. <laughs> that evening at the Field Museum, I drink my free mid-shelf whiskey and watch Mike Pence and Mark Kirk and other Midwest Republicans give their speeches, and honestly, they sound like pretty nice guys. And when at dinner, Dick Cheney himself arrives, the angel of death in a cowboy hat and Garamond eyeglasses. <laughs> my aunt takes a picture as I watch him extol in between hacking coughs every philosophical stance I abhor. Mm -hmm. She sends me the shot in an email. Just wanted proof you and Dick Cheney were in the same room, the caption reads. I look at my steak knife, ponder the distance to the stage, and how easy it really is to throw your life away. And then I simply eat my meatloaf. It's delicious. My trip home that night is somber. I discuss with my aunt my own misgivings about the AHCA and disappointment with Obama, she nods an understanding when I explain that doesn't mean I agree with her party. After all, oftentimes she doesn't either, but she shows up anyway to continue her slow assault on the glass ceiling and to try and protect some of the more moderate members from Tea Party primaries. She admits that she's getting tired of it after all these years. And as I slip wearily out of my tie and suspenders, I admit to myself finally that that's the true cost of political change. Boredom. When the Cheneys and Perrys and Bachmans of the world step down off their stages, my grand circus isn't really any different than a long afternoon meeting at any white-collar job I've ever had, except the stats and charts and buzzwords are tied up in billions of dollars and the future of our country. My head hurts, and I have to get up tomorrow morning to go back. 
We take regional brunch with the New Englanders, even though as a Virginia resident, my aunt should meet with the Southern Coalition, but she knows that's a non-starter. Here, she has friends. They're nice people, and as they lay out their plans for fundraising, even in lost-cause states like Delaware and Vermont, I find myself rooting for them. A gentleman from New York, an old friend of my aunt's, gives me his card when he finds out I'm a comedian. Give me a call, he says. We could use more charismatic young people in the party. (laughs) I touch the cut on my cheek again, and I pocket the card. (laughs) As I take yet another trip to the bathroom to purge some of the free coffee I've been swilling, I feel defeated and vaguely foolish. It's another beautiful day out, but I won't see much of it. Wanting a moment alone with my thoughts, I take a stroll to the bathroom at the far end of the floor, and there, at the urinal next to me, is the man himself, Rance Priebus. He nods curtly at me. How are you doing? He asks. Pretty well. Yourself? Not bad. A pause. Hey, I promised a friend I'd asked, uh, what exactly is your name an anagram for? <laughs> There's a moment of silence as he finishes washing his hands, then he gives a forced chuckle. You have a great day now, okay? <laughs> and he's gone. The next time I see him, he'll be up on stage calling to order the voting meeting for this year's RNC. But if I look closely, I think he seems a little pissed off. (laughs) A little frazzled. I smile, grab some more coffee, and settle in to watch the show. It's a beautiful summer day in Chicago, and this cobra can still spit. Hey, dude. So uh, right now I'm going to turn the mic over to Sarah Schieber. Sarah's been on a bunch of our episodes, told some killer stories. She played some viola with us a handful of times. That was really, really fun. Uh, and she nominated uh, the dual Chris Crotwell, Shelby Mongan story about their uh, their camping trip, which a lot of people really liked. But I thought Sarah had a really uh, compelling take on it. So I wanted to hear why. So, Sarah, uh, let's talk about that. Hi, Eric. So I really love this story because basically Chris and Shelby are both kind of these pantheons of your stories, I feel like. I'm always really excited when one of them gets up to tell a story. I know we're in for a great five minutes or so. And when they got up to tell this dual story, I was equally excited, if not more so. And they did not disappoint. Uh, I think that they both have these just really unique storytelling styles Um, But what they really have in common is they're always so honest and really connect with the audience. And what I especially loved about this story, in addition to it being just an awesome story, was that you really got to see both of their kind of storytelling styles just play off of each other in this really great way. And it was also kind of adorable. So, great story. This is a story um, about a weekend we decided to have last summer. See, if I don't get out of Chicago... Every once in a while, I will lose my fucking mind. Uh, I spent 25 years in Alabama with lots of space and not that many people. And every uh, every couple of months, I start to feel really, really boxed in here. So I decided I wanted to go camping. Me and Shelby had only been dating for a little bit, uh, not that long. Um, so it may be a little risky for me to invite someone camping with me. Uh, but something that's true about me, I don't hope that things will go well. I don't have to cross my fingers. I just assume that things will. (laughs) I've been a big denizen of the internet since I was a small child. Many of you have heard stories about that. Uh, And I camped occasionally, but I tend to stick to the indoor, to the couch, 
to the laptop. So when Chris suggested going camping, I thought it might be a fun trip out of the ordinary. So we found a place about 30 miles north of uh, the city and decided, let's bike there. That's probably not a terrible idea. Because once again, I don't have to hope things will go well. I just can assume that they will. (laughs) So we crossed our fingers and we headed out. Uh, And it started out as a fantastic trip through beautiful, wassy, rich neighborhoods <laughs> with a lovely bike path by Ravinia, by lots of beautiful trees. It was a great, great beginning. Because yeah, you guys know that just north of Chicago is a giant fairy tale kingdom of white flight. <laughs> it's just, it's beautiful. And for all of that, it was fantastic until you hit this magical barrier where the money runs out. And I think that's right around Waukegan. And it's a reality check. So we pulled off uh, on a little side ravine uh, amidst broken beer bottles and a couple of used syringes. And we tried to decide what we were going to do. Uh, we were frying in the heat, so we decided to get off the bike path and bike down what turned out to be a comically unaccommodating for bikes path uh, down the street, but found our way uh, to a CVS for the world's greatest Gatorade. It was a beautiful thing, and we found our way to the campground. Uh, so Chris, for those of you who might know him better, uh, may know that he has a tendency to be very, very sure he's right when he's not. Uh, <laughs> so after 35 miles of biking we got to the campground and despite my exhausted insisting that the first turn was where our campground was well I was positive that we'd find it eventually we were I just assumed we were lost we, we weren't lost I just insisted we were lost she knew exactly where we were but that wasn't really the point so eventually we got there uh chris was working on getting a reservation set and i thought great the hard part is over so i was lounging under a tree trying to rest this chunky body does not do 35 miles on a bike very well in july heat uh and i was excited because i thought i had made a chipmunk friend a little chipmunk had started walking up to me um Unfortunately, that chipmunk was a bastard and bit me in the leg, which, oddly enough, biting turned out to be a theme for me for the rest of the week. Yeah, at at this point, uh, I'm super upbeat. Uh, I like camping because misery is just a state of mind. Um, And it's really important to be uncomfortable. I think it's important to be uncomfortable. I hate being uncomfortable. Yeah, it's it's also really important to realize that other people have feelings. don't deal with misery the way that I do, so she's very nearly dead at this point. It's very hot, and 35 miles on a bike on gravel trails through Waukegan just got fucking miserable by the end. So we decided to go check out Lake Michigan. Uh, we were excited about being able to swim. We were excited about having a campground on a beach, ironically right next to a defunct uh, nuclear power plant. Uh, but we got out to the beach, and it was a rocky beach. It was a stabby, rocky beach <laughs> with water colder than you could believe so despite it being like you know 100 degrees outside the water was maybe 33 degrees yeah one of my least favorite things about chicago is that it does get hot but you just cannot fucking go swimming here (laughs) that lake is miserable all goddamn year long and it's always disappointing to be like yes swimming and then you get right up to your junk and you're like i hate everything about this (laughs) so we found our way back from the beach and we thought the worst is over. This trip can't possibly get worse. <laughs> we were wrong. The next morning, we decided we were we were ready and we were going to bike back to Chicago. 
And then we quickly discovered that my bike had a flat tire. Uh, and being unseasoned bike travelers, we didn't have an extra tube or patch kits or pumps or anything. So we decided, we'll walk. There's a metro station about 10 miles from here. We can walk our bikes. Because It'll be fine. Because you don't have to hope things will go well. You can just assume that they will. <laughs> um, the whole night before, Shelby is hiding in the tent because mosquitoes apparently think that she's delicious. They hate me. They won't bite me at all. So I just... <laughs> I just, I'm just sitting there, like, gleefully, like, poking a fire while she just, like, glares out of the sweltering tent the whole time. The biting thing. It comes back. Uh, but so we decided to head out. Uh, we walked through um, some really pretty woods and a pretty trail. We thought maybe this wouldn't be so bad. And then we happened upon a Resident Evil-style industrial wasteland uh, in blaring heat, but found our way, and the irony of this name is not lost in us, I promise. To Zion, Illinois. <laughs> Zion, Illinois is a tiny little hellhole. Um, there's just nothing there. And normally when we're out on trips, we like to eat at a local place. You know, it makes it more fun. You get something you can't normally have. So we scout all over Zion, exhausted, sunburnt, hot, and find a KFC. Uh, that's it's it's with air conditioning. So we had chicken fingers and uh, fountain drinks and found our way onto the Metra. Uh, and eventually we got back into the city, we got into Evanston. So the plan was, pump up my bike tire, bike home, sleep for three and a half hours, shower, and then go back to sleep. Uh, and we filled up my bike with air. Uh, about a block later, my tire was flat again. Um, and by this time, we were exhausted. We were way overheated. We were both furious at the world and ready to be home. Uh, so we decided... Let's get on the CTA. Just Lovely public transit. Take the red line. Right. Uh, but it's five, and I don't realize that, so we take our bikes oh, no. to try to get on the train. You know this already. But you can't take your goddamn bike on the train at five, and I get it, right? Like, I get it. You shouldn't be able to. But at that point, it just seemed unreasonable. <laughs> a, lady, a lady cut in front of me while I was waiting to load a transit pass, and I almost said some really awful things. Just barely managed not to. So we're just like, fuck it. Chain the bikes. Get on the train. We're just going to go. fuck go home. Just go home. I just want to be home. We're so hungry. So we just hop on the red line and head back to the apartment. Uh, we found food along the way back. Uh, and as Geiger can attest because he was home when we showed up, uh, we collapsed um, afterwards. So hearing the story, you might think uh, that I would look back on that trip with duration. Uh, I was covered in welts from mosquitoes. I should never bike that far. Uh, I shouldn't really be outside. I should stay. <laughs> That's where I belong. I fit well there. Um, I really should look on that trip with derision, uh, but I, I don't. It's it's one of the greatest things I've ever done. Um, I conquered a bike trip I never thought I could, um, and I managed, in the midst of one of the most challenging things I've ever done, to not kill him. Uh, and I mean that. <laughs> With a deep amount of affection. Um, this was the cleansing fire that uh, the goals of our relationship went through. Um, and we'd only been dating for about three, four months at that point. And it was at that point that I knew, holy shit, I think I'm going to be stuck with this one for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I actually had a really good time. <laughs> like, like the whole time. Um, 
I had a great time, but I knew, I I knew, I knew that she was super, super miserable. And my take home was, um, I have been on much less stressful trips with people who we I fought with constantly. And I remember getting all the way back to the apartment and being like, oh man. That was a nice weekend, and I thought about it for a little bit, and I was like, God, she is a good sport. (laughs) And uh, some of you know me better than others, but I think we can all agree, if you know me at all, that what I really need in a partner is someone who's a good sport. (laughs) So, I've learned from him that sometimes keeping your fingers crossed and jumping in despite my numerous mom protests that that's a terrible idea, uh, sometimes it works out okay. Thank you guys so much. Yeah! Hi, I'm here with Mary Beth Smith. You know her if you listen to MBSing with Mary Beth Smith, which is a good show, or if you come to our shows because she's there a lot. She's really cool. She's also in the Nerdalogs, you idiot. Who do you think she is? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be so mean to you. I love you guys. So Mary Beth, uh, as many people did, nominated James D'Amato's uh, story that is not and is about tables. And Mary Beth had some very high praise for it. She said it was possibly for her greatest of all time your story. So Mary Beth, can you explain that, please? Yeah, I mean, James's table story is definitely up there as one of my goats. Uh, <laughs> it, I, in re-listening to it, uh, and I've probably listened to his story uh, both in person and recorded probably at least four or five times now. Uh, it, I can hear myself laughing in the audience and I still laugh at the same places, which I think is a huge sign of how much I enjoyed it. But it was just this, I've always been, um, really interested in, uh, people who are in, who, who are in like romantic relationships, but also creative relationships with one another. Um, and I think, um, those aspects of James's story are really important to me, uh, in the sense that a lot of the ways that he talks about his relationship with Kat, um, he talks about how much he loved how they would create together. And I just thought it was really, um, sweet and poignant and, and the way that he described, uh, their relationship and friendship was so, amazing and all the like symbolism that he you know didn't create it's it's there in his story and uh and I also think it um it meant a lot to me because I think just the month before that if not pretty shortly before that I told a story about how I had never been in love and then hearing James's story uh and thinking back on my own and, and kind of, like, contrasting them was so... I mean, like, I cried, man. I was sitting there crying, and, like, I think right in front of him as he told the story. I was just... I love it so much. So, two months ago, I paid $1,200 for a table. Now, a lot of you are probably thinking that is crazy to spend $1,200 on a table. Don't worry, that was the deposit. The table is $4,000. Um... The Geek Chic Emissary comes in your choice of cherry, maple, or walnut. It is totally bespoke, and it's customized to your nerdy lifestyle. I know many people have drooled over that on the internet. Uh, This is the Lamborghini of gaming tables. Uh, If you play Dungeons & Dragons on this thing, the dragon will actually hop out of the game and pour you a scotch. Um, 
But and you know, as much as I wish, I am not the type of person who can just you know spend four thousand dollars on a table. Uh, I don't have that money. It took years and years of careful saving and you know not spending too much to earn that. Uh, but that's why I'm surprised to be standing in front of you as the owner of a Geek Chic Emissary, uh, or future owner, because that money was supposed to be an engagement ring. Yeah, there's the theme. <laughs> this is not a story about fancy tables. Uh, I apologize to all the fans of fancy tables in the audience. Um, so I, I didn't always play uh, role-playing games. Uh, I, I own a... I, I run a podcast called One Shot, which is all about one, uh, uh, role-playing games, and it's actually kind of my career path now. Um, but, you know, I wasn't a fan of these games my entire life. I actually got into them in college for one reason, and her name is Kat Murphy. Um, and uh, Kat is one of the most beautiful people that I have ever seen in my life. And I was instantly attracted to her. And she was signing up for the newbie game uh, of D&D when, you know, our freshman year in college. So I had begged my fat friend to drop his spot so that I could get in on that game. Um, and, you know, after a couple of months of talking about, you know, dumb games and superheroes and cartoons, she accidentally became the best friend that I have ever had. Um, and this wasn't a best friendship as I'm used to thinking of it. Sure, we both like cartoons and Magic the Gathering, but it was more than that. Uh, before Cat, I have never been closer to another human being. Um, everything that I loved about my past was reaffirmed by her and everything I discovered that I loved, I shared with her. Um, and the proudest work, the work that I'm proudest of in my life, uh, was a collaboration of, with her. So uh, we were tied closer together than I have ever been tied to another person, uh, in the world. And that friendship was so important to us, so fundamental to who we had become as people that we were both terrified at the thought of losing it, obviously because we were afraid of falling in love. Um, like any good opposite gender friends, we would laugh off the idea when people brought it up to us, but it sort of hung in the air like a guillotine. A relationship between us was a real possibility, and it would have real consequences. Uh, if things failed, we risked damaging that friendship that was so important to us. And almost as terrifying, if things succeeded, that would probably be it. We would be in our 20s and dating the person that we were going to marry. So, like any responsible adults in that situation, we ignored it as much as possible. <laughs> And that did not work. Our senior year, we kissed, and then we moved to Chicago together after we graduated. Um, now, if anybody here is thinking about moving in with their significant other, um, especially in light of the personal tragedy that is obviously coming at the end of the story, <laughs> my advice is this. Stop worrying and do it. Uh, because, like... Living with your significant other and the person that you love is the best. Uh, every night is like the greatest sleepover that you've ever been to. And honestly, I wish I had more mature terms to put that in. But I am a grown man who watches cartoons every day. So I am working with limited resources here. 
<laughs> While we lived together, Kat and I dreamt up some of the best ideas either of us have ever had. And during the day, we were just like everyone else our age. We were working jobs we hated to get by on very little. But at home, at night, we were geniuses. We were artists creating the kind of worlds that I wanted to see and writing the kind of stories that I wanted to read. I wanted that feeling and that person forever. Uh, but uh, one day I came home and she was sad. And like every other time when she was sad, I asked her to tell me what was wrong. And I told her that we she would feel better when she told me. And I told her that we could handle it together. But this time the problem wasn't work or money or family. It was us. And uh, heartbreak sucks. But uh, the biggest thing that we were both worried about was losing that friendship. Um, and then I forgot what I was supposed to say. We are to- we totally ignored conventional wisdom, and we fought to stay friends. We even helped each other look for apartments after we broke up. Uh, we stayed in the same game of D and D, and we talked basically every day, and it hurt. So bad to be so close to her and not be with her. But together, we saved that friendship. And as things normalized, I held out a little hope that maybe she just needed time to grow and that maybe we both needed time to grow and we could still be together someday. But then John came along. And in addition to possessing innumerable physical and character flaws, the apex of which is that he is wrong about Batman. (laughs) John is actually a kind and wonderful person who loves my best friend very much. Um, And this on Christmas Eve this year, when I got a call from Kat... I knew what was happening when the phone rang. Uh, once, after a week without contact, Kat and I called each other to have a conversation about a new idea for a Zelda game we had thought up. And despite being separated by time and distance, we had the same idea at the same time. It was very exciting, and this call was exactly like that, except she said, I'm engaged. Um... And in that moment, all my hopes and illusions fell apart. The romantic portion of our lives together was over. Really over. And what I thought was the answer turned out to be not the answer. I cannot spend every day with my best friend. One day, maybe one day soon, our lives will change and go in very different directions. She could move. I could move. We might go days or weeks or even months without speaking. And if I want love, if I want a partner, a family, I need to start over with someone else. Somehow I have to find that powerful, amazing connection with another person. And when I was contemplating the possibility of dying alone, she said to me, will you be my maid of honor? And I realized that all those feelings of loss and loneliness, as bad as they are, are only temporary. Despite the significance of that moment and the profound pain that I was experiencing, I was not dead. Years from now, when I look back on this time, I'm going to remember being there for the most important friend that I have ever had. Pain is fleeting. But the joy that you get from the people who are truly and deeply important to you, that's going to last you until you die. 
So I took the money that was going to start our lives together and I bought a table because I am actually really bad with money. (laughs) But like our friendship, that table is unique and precious. It will be the foundation of countless imaginary worlds. And if treated with respect and care, it will be with me for the rest of my life. And as scars go, that is not a bad one to have. Thank you. Hi, I'm here with Shelby Mongan. You may know Shelby as one of two honorary Nerdologues members. We love Shelby a lot. We were actually just talking about how uh, she can't wait to come back and do more Your Stories because she was a mainstay for like basically all of 2012 and the first half of 2013. And then you went to school and got smarter and stuff. But you're still cool. We still like you. Uh, so Shelby is here to talk about Natasha Samrini's trip story. Uh, which was, it probably, like, we don't actually do this by number of votes, secret, but, like, that probably got the most actual votes anyway from this year. Uh, but I thought Shelby had a really, like, compelling reason for nominating it. So, Shelby, what spoke to you about that story? So, like you said, I've been to a lot of your stories in my day, and there's a very particular sort of story that is told there, and it's loose, and it's fun, and it's sort of silly and very nerdy. Something It's what you come to expect when you go to your stories, which I love. That's the sort of story I tell. That's the sort of story I love. Um, and when Natasha got up, and I had not heard her stories before, when Natasha got up and started talking, there was uh, this incredible grace with the way that she spoke. It was measured in a way that didn't feel forced. It was sincere, but not unbridled. It was... Something that I had never heard at your stories before. It was a different animal. And obviously, she's a seasoned storyteller. She knows what she's doing. And I think one of the joys of the show is that it's a space where people can come and be loose and do whatever they want. And it's a space where they can come and do bits. But it's also a space where you can tell a beautifully constructed, funny, but touching and intense story about an acid trip and i was i just remember sitting back on my seat after she was finished and just let the rest of the story sort of wash over me i was so it was just nothing i had expected and it stuck with me to this day i gave it my highest remarks when i recommended because i absolutely loved it i'm not using names in here to protect the innocent <laughs> one of the characters is me though so that's obvious um and uh uh Anyways, it is about a journey. <laughs> Sorry, a journey, a trip, so to speak. My first trip of this kind. I'm not going to say anything else. I'm going to start. <laughs> um, everything changed that day. I would try hard to remember the clouds, the church clouds, the boundless energy that pumped through our feet, and how bright colors really can be. They were sweet discoveries I'd made under his protective watch. But there was one thing that I couldn't forget, that I couldn't undo, no matter how I tried. It was the kiss, the one kiss that would change everything. Why won't the morning come faster? I need the morning to come faster. I rolled into bed and shoved my hands into my hoodie. Soft, waxy wrappers spilled out. Oh my God, how many Tootsie Rolls did we eat? (laughs) 
The magic was starting to lift, evaporating, leaving more questions than answers. How am I supposed to tell my boyfriend someone else kissed me? Maybe, hey, no big deal. Got your Lagunita. I know it's your favorite. <laughs> um, why am I covering my face with my hands? I'm so sorry. That's weird. I don't know how to say this. I didn't feel anything. I'm going to start with that. I didn't feel anything. The drugs, they play with your emotions. I didn't know. How was I supposed to tell him that my first trip felt like my first love from start to finish, but not for the reasons he'd think and looking back for reasons he would never be able to understand or forgive? Colors. In one day, we lived countless days of color in fast forward motion, running, running, running. My roommate said, trust me. So I did. Sans watches, sans plans, fast hearts, pure joy, and then pain. When it was all gone, and I cried to know if I'd ever feel that way again. Put it in your mouth, he said. Like this? Yeah, just hold it in there for like 20 minutes. Let it dissolve on your tongue. You promise, I said. I'm not going to like die or pass out or something. <laughs> yeah, I promise. I won't let anything happen to you. Well, what do we do till then, I asked. Did you, like, make a playlist or something? Um, this isn't really the type of thing you make a playlist for, Tasha. <laughs> if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. I pressed the paper to my tongue and smiled. Cheers. We stared at the walls and waited. This was the advent of my upper middle class upbringing and postgraduate education. <laughs> Jobless, insuranceless, nearly 30, and most importantly, according to my mother... Childless. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> Just another normal Chicago Sunday afternoon. Chewing paper with my roommate, waiting for the world to change. I moved to my room to await the inevitable. And then I heard her voice. I can't believe you still don't have a real bed, Natasha. I thought I raised you better. I logged on to Facebook. <laughs> Dang it, I'm not supposed to communicate with the outside world. Never mind. I fell back onto my frameless bed. Colored lintworms wiggle dance from the white brick walls, and I watch them with more trusting intensity than a human should ever place in an inanimate object. But suddenly they were alive, and then it happened. Oh my God, my teeth feel amazing. <laughs> The color green. <laughs> we ran, we ran and we ran, we ran and we ran and we ran. And when we got tired, we drank from the kids' water fountain in the park. The lawn smelled like crap. Fresh, steaming piles of dog crap. It was the second warmest day of Chicago spring, so of course everything smelled fresher. And the sky cupped the spherical greenness of the day. He lifted pull-ups on the train tracks and I ate Tootsie Rolls and watched. He said, we can go anywhere. Thinking. Let's keep running, I said. Pilsen streets loop through endless Mexican families until the city. He waved at me. There's this field I found. Oh my God, there are fields in Pilsen? How could you not tell me there are fields in Pilsen? <laughs> the blue sky punched up his aqua eyes, and I followed his pace in my bouncy winter boots. Look at this pile, he said. He conquered trash heaps. 
Oh my gosh, it's a cement block on a wooden crate. How the hell did they move a cement block on top of a wooden crate? (laughs) I shook my head. I have no idea, but I love that this pile is so interesting to you right now. (laughs) Abandoned fields of non-sequitur, construction pieces, and corner store bottles. A muddy long-sleeve shirt with buttons on the ground. But now he pulled me up onto his trash pile and sex charged through my body. I never, ever thought land grabs could be so erotic. (laughs) Back home, we shared space. Craigslist camping buddies pushed together by lack of money. This must be how Nicole Kidman felt for Tom Cruise in Far and Away. (laughs) (laughs) Or how Pocahontas felt for John Smith and... um, Pocahontas. <laughs> my boyfriend's voice slipped into my ears and I felt shame. Let's go, I said. Blue. It took us five hours to find a taco in Pilsen. <laughs> Nothing taco related should take five hours in Pilsen. <laughs> Instead, we found the only church's chicken south south of downtown. I looked at the menu. There is way too much chicken on this menu to decide, I said. Wild-eyed and rosy-cheeked, he sidestepped the door for another chicken-eager couple. Um, yeah, he looked behind the counter for a sign of a tortilla. The girl behind the counter looked like Kit from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> Latin kip in an apron and hat. Do you want grilled or fried? It was way too much for us. We left. (laughs) On the train tracks again. That was the best taco I ever had, he said, hanging from the stairs underneath the tracks. We watched the clouds drift in lava lamp time. Oh my God, it looks like the ocean, I whispered. I could watch this all day. Hey! What are you two doing on the tracks? Officer Rotund hopped out of his cop car while his trollo sidekick guarded the steering wheel. My roommate said, just looking at this tree, officer. As he tugged onto the only treeless, rootless stick hanging from the fence that protected us from the officer's power. All right, we'll be careful, he warned, shaking his head and laughing. (laughs) We turned in stunned relief, in stunned, breathless, giddy disbelief. Just looking at this tree officer, I grabbed his arm. I can't believe he bought that. (laughs) Purple. I am never going to feel this way again, am I? I stared down the tracks of the sleeping engines. He climbed the cars, green, orange, yellow. The pastels, the rhythm, the endless tracks with no owner. And bitter epiphany spilled up from the purple limestone hugging my feet. Kublai Khan. I get it now. The opium and the paradise cave. Colors like no other world. Why didn't anyone tell me about this before? How could they keep this from me? I was so angry at the world. We closed the distance between us. Best friend camping buddies with a secret. 
shafted exes trying to recover from separate romances. Like an arcade ball in that 70s lap game where you have to drive the metal sticks to keep it going back and forth. Wider and closer, moving momentum, don't let it fall. I wiped the tears from my eyes, but he knew. He hugged me close, and I leaned in. We straddled the cement barricades and watched Dusk City below through the fence. Why do we do it? I asked. We just keep going day after day for no reason. Work and jobs, there's so little down there. Doesn't anybody else know that this place exists? I don't know, he said. I don't know why we do it. I guess it's just life, and some people feel that they have to. I asked him, did you ever take your ex-girlfriend here? To the tracks? No, but we tripped together for sure. What'd you do? I don't know. We had fun, I guess. It was just different. Do you think you'll ever feel that way again, I said? You mean love someone? I don't know. She really fucked me up. Yeah, I know, I said. We could make a web series out of your life. (laughs) I mean, out of my life. I keep thinking in my head, what if he, what if my boyfriend doesn't get it? I mean, I don't think he's seen what we've seen. He won't even cross the street if the light's not green. He's scared of heights. He doesn't even like to fly on a good day. We could make a web series out of our fucked up lives. And then I saw it. I watched him feel his purple. Watered eyes, he put his hoodie up, and he balance beamed the barrier and walked away. Ready to go, he said. Yeah, where do you want to go? Let's go home. Inside the apartment, the air was still, and the street moved like waves outside. But the air stood still. On his workshop floor hours earlier, we'd laid on our bellies and measured the air, with his measuring tape, (laughs) until our eyes cried and our mouths dried from laughing, watching TV, but my legs still wanted to run. Do your teeth still feel amazing, he said? No, I laughed. My whole face does. And then he kissed me. I struggle to remember already the hue flesh pixel of that journey, of that trip, of our movement out of real life for just one day. But if I could do things over, I would have been more careful because I should have. I would have been less free because that would have been the right way to do it. I would have been less relaxed. And if it meant that that kiss wouldn't have happened and my boyfriend still trusted me, I would have taken almost all of it back. But I wouldn't have given up the friendship and the fellowship that made it happen in the first place. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our stories for today, uh, for the year, actually. We're going to close out with a couple more songs you all liked, and that'll put a bow on 2014. Uh, but before we go, I really want to stress that the stories and songs you just heard weren't chosen by popular vote. It was all about what reasons people had for loving them. Uh, and it's also important to stress that there were so many great stories this year, and we couldn't represent everyone we wanted to. Uh, we've got a bunch more favorites written up on our website, but even beyond that, well, uh, We couldn't do the show without you guys, and you are all the best. Thanks for helping sustain your stories for our third year. 
Uh, we are looking forward to a fantastic 2015, and we hope you'll be there with us. Thanks, and enjoy these songs. Like a plastic bag drifting through the wind Wanting to start again Do you ever feel so paper thin Like a house of cards One book from caving in Do you ever feel already buried deep Six feet under screens But no one seems to hear a thing Do you know there's still a chance for you There's a spark in you you just gotta ignite the light and let it shine Just own the night like the 4th of July Baby, you're a firework <laughs> What's your word? Make them go, oh, I, I You shoot across the sky Like a waste of space Your original cannot be replaced If you only knew what the future holds After a hurricane comes a rainbow Maybe the reason why all the doors are closed So you can open one that leads you to the perfect road Like a lightning bolt Your heart will grow And when it's time, you know You just gotta ignite the light And let it shine Just on the night Like the 4th of July Cause you're a firework Come on, don't watch your work Make them go all As you shoot across the sky Maybe you're a firework Come on, let your colors burn
This has been a Nerdalogs production. For more on the Nerdalogs and our shows, please go to www.nerdalogs.com. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.